very excited to be back. Uh, we had a great time away, but at this point I've got to say that a week without preaching just doesn't feel complete. So I'm glad you let me indulge my, my desire to preach. So, two weeks ago, while we were not here, we were walking along the sidewalks of 21st century Corinth. Now, we weren't literally in Greece, right? We were in Universal Studios in Florida. But it's a great amusement park, and it really draws a broad cross-section of American society. And one of the things that really struck me was that we are very much in 21st century Corinth. And I don't say that as a discouragement. I know a lot of people take it that way, but I actually take some comfort and a sense of mission from one very simple fact which is that Corinth changed. Right, the Greco-Roman culture and all its decay and all of its depravity was transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's happened once before. It can happen again. So those things that make us shake our heads or, or want to cry out as we see things go on in our culture should really just make us more aware of our responsibility to spread the gospel far and wide. But that's a sermon for another day. We're going to talk about that in April. But at one point as we were walking along these these sidewalks, seeing just about everything you can imagine, we had split up to do different attractions, and Melanie wound up walking behind a woman who who had chosen to use the valuable advertising space across her back and shoulders to tattoo the message, We Were Born to Die. And we talked about this nihilistic worldview later on, because as a statement of purpose, it's both wrong and depressing, right? Uh, We were not born to die. We were born to live and to relate to and glorify God. But nonetheless, I think this is an increasingly common worldview in America, right? This sort of hopelessness. But again, I don't think that's a discouragement because, quite honestly, a worldview without hope represents a great opportunity for the hope of the gospel. But one thing I could say fairly quickly in in favor of this cheery little bit of backvertising, as I call it, was that it represented an honest assessment, at least, that we all have a terminal condition called life. Although death is not our purpose... It is a reality for us, for each and every one of us, unless Christ should return first. So in a very real sense, we are all sick with a disease that will lead to death. Yet again, I don't say this as a discouragement, right? Because it's an opportunity for the gospel, as we're going to see today as we continue looking at the seven signs of the Savior. These seven miracles that John tells us are signs pointing to the great truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. These seven signs he tells us, he wrote down, so that we may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing we may have life in his name. And that, of course, is as we continue to go through this series, why I would continue to urge you to invite your friends, your neighbors, your relatives who who are not yet believers, but who are seeking hope and something greater, like particularly if they're lost in that worldview expressed on that woman's back. 
and they have not experienced real hope. Now, you might have noticed we're doing the signs a little bit out of order. That's a product of our blizzard back in January. Uh, so I'll be talking about the second sign today, even though Niall has already given us excellent messages on the third and fourth signs. And the second sign is found in John chapter 4, and I will put it up on the screen, but it takes two screens. It's a longer passage. It's verses 46 to 54, so I would urge you, if you have a Bible, follow along. That way, if I forget to advance the slide, you still have the Word of God in your hand. So John writes about Jesus. He says, So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, Sir, Come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better, and they said to him, Yesterday, at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. And he himself believed in all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. Got my slides out of sync here again. Now, this sign takes place at a particularly interesting point in Jesus' early ministry. Three weeks ago, we saw the very beginning of his ministry in Cana, Galilee, at a wedding. He called his first disciples, and then he he proved himself to them by doing a miracle, by turning water into wine, by demonstrating power over the elements of nature. And so that sign inspired in them a fervent belief and faith for those handful of disciples. And it pointed both them and us, ultimately, to Christ's sacrifice on the cross. Well, subsequent to that wedding, he's gone to Jerusalem for a feast. And he attracts a pretty large popular following because he does some miracles. And and John doesn't tell us what they are. He does some miracles that gets people's attention. They they get excited about him. And and then he has a a really deep, in-depth discussion with this teacher named Nicodemus that really ends with no clear resolution. It's kind of one of the weirder conversations because it just trails off. And so I would say that Jesus had had a mixed experience with the Jews in Jerusalem. They were interested in his miracles, but they were kind of noncommittal about him. So then on his way home, he passes through Samaria. And remember, Samaria is, is you know, the, um, the, 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 the hated remnants of the northern kingdom of Israel. They're viewed as inferior half-breeds. Right? The Jews hate them, they hate the Jews, it's a terrible kind of situation. But Jesus has tremendous success here. Right? He goes into one town, and in the end, lots of people came to believe that he was the savior of the world based only on his teaching. Right? He didn't do any miracles at all other than demonstrating a deep knowledge of one woman's life. So then he comes home. 
to Galilee. And verse 45, right before our passage, tells us the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast. For they too had gone to the feast. So, so the people of Galilee were really excited that Jesus was there because they'd seen some miracles and they wanted more of this exciting new Jesus show. That's what sets the stage for today's verses. John begins in verse 46. So he came again to Cana in Galilee where he had made the water wine. So John here is explicitly linking this miracle, this sign, to the first sign. Because they take place at the same location. And, and as we read the end of it, he ends the two signs in a very parallel fashion. And I think this is to help us understand these aren't just two random events, right? There are no random events for Jesus. These are tightly, carefully designed signs to help us believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And John continues that at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill, and and in verse 47 he tells us, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Then in verses 48 and 49, we're going to see again this odd pattern that we talked about three weeks ago. And it's the one that kind of makes this passage seem kind of uncomfortable, a little awkward as we read it. At least it always has for me. Because it seems like Jesus is not being very nice, right? I'm talking about this pattern where somebody comes to Jesus to make a request of him on their own terms. And then Jesus turns them down. He says no. And he does it to test the quality and the nature of their faith. And we see, in this case, it's actually particularly interesting. It doesn't come across well in the English, but in the original language, the you in verse 48 is a plural. So he's actually addressing the whole crowd. He doesn't just tell the man no. He tells the whole crowd of Galileans who are there for a show no. Right? He says, unless you all see signs and wonders, you all will not believe. Remember, these Galileans are really excited he's here because they, they had seen some miracles and they wanted some more. And I think it's this desire to be amazed and served through miracles on demand that Jesus is addressing when he turns down this poor man. And so then in verse 49, I think we see the man's pride soften, and he humbles himself. You can almost hear his tone of voice change, because the literal translation reads, reads something like this. Lord, come down before my dear little boy dies. You see, his faith and understanding of who Jesus is grows throughout the passage, right? He now is in a different place than he was just a verse or two before. And he's demonstrating his genuine faith and his desperation for Jesus' healing touch. Verse 50 is the heart of this passage. It is the key verse. Because Jesus tells this official who's saying, come down to heal my son. He says, go, your son will live. What we see is that the official is no longer approaching Jesus on his own terms, right? He's no longer demanding that the miracle be done the way he wants the miracle done. 
He simply believes and he goes. And we see then the completion of this pattern, right? The pattern that began with a request and a denial. Well, now it goes on because he changes his attitude. He approaches Jesus in genuine faith and Jesus grants his request. And then verses 51 to 53 bring us the news that the boy is going to live exactly as Jesus had promised. And, and as the official is going home, he meets his servants. And it, again, we kind of lose it in the, in the English translation, but the servants use exactly the same words Jesus did to help us understand. That just Jesus said, he will live. The servants say, he will live. Okay? And then they have this conversation about the timing and the reason for why John wrote this down why we care, is because he wants to make it really, really clear. Jesus didn't get lucky here, right? He didn't say, your son's going to be well, and if it works out, great. And if it doesn't work out, maybe nobody will think about it, right? This was not a spontaneous recovery. This was not a lucky guess on Jesus' part. The, The deal about the time, why they focused so precisely on when did the boy get well, When did Jesus say he was going to get well? They're the exact same time. It's to make the point that this is clear, right? The boy's fever broke at exactly the moment Jesus said, your son will live. And then the passage concludes with a statement of belief that's very similar to the conclusion of the first sign. And he himself believed in all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. Before we address the meaning and significance of this sign, I think we would all agree that there is an awful lot going on in this passage. Because this odd conversation between Jesus and this poor father who's desperate for his son to be healed, and this enormous crowd of Galileans who are looking for a show, tells us a great deal about the nature of faith and the value of signs and what healthy faith really looks like. And so since that conversation takes place before the actual miracle, I mean, in many senses, the weight of this passage happens before the miracle takes place. I'm going to talk to that first. What does this passage tell us about our faith? And then we'll turn to what is the meaning of this sign. And the first thing that this passage teaches us about our faith is about the proper basis for our faith. But a faith based on Jesus' word is greatly preferred over a faith based on miracles and experiences. This is a little ironic as we spend seven weeks talking about these amazing miracles of Jesus. And I would say it would be easy for us as we look at these things, because these are amazing, right? We're seeing the power of God worked out on earth around lots of witnesses, so we can believe these things happened exactly as it says they happened. It would be easy to get excited about them the way the Galileans are excited about them. I mean, they're giddy about the miracles, but they're not thinking about why they matter. They're not considering their significance. And we cannot be like the Galileans, just excited about miracles, but for no good reason. You see, while the first disciples actually came to believe in Jesus because of a sign, the water to wine, what we see is that most of the Jews in Jerusalem 
and in Galilee get excited about the miracles in a way that doesn't indicate genuine faith there. In contrast, those those hated Samaritans, those less-than-human people that the Jews despise, they got it, right? They responded to Jesus' teaching with tremendous faith, and they don't require any miracles, right? And I think that that the the way both John wrote this passage and the placement of it in the Gospels is intended to draw a really sharp contrast between those outsiders, right, those shameful, terrible people who got it, who really got it based on the word, and those of God's chosen people who refuse to accept Jesus unless they get a really good show. And I think that's what Jesus is responding to in verse 48 when he rejects the man's request saying, unless you all see signs and wonders, you all will not believe. Contrast that with the words of verse 41, which we haven't read this morning, but it's a little bit earlier. It talks about the Samaritans and says, many more believed because of his word. And then we see verse 50 in today's passage. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him. You see, the transition, the pivot, is that this man's faith was now like that of the Samaritans. He believed in the word, not in the miracles. What Jesus wanted from people then is exactly what he wants out of us today, which is a faith based on his word rather than just on ecstatic public events like miracles. It's not that miracles don't have value. Of course they have value. John writes about them so that we come to know and understand and accept Jesus as the Christ. But Jesus does not want that to be the anchor and root of our faith. I think we often, at least I know I do, I think we often desire to see a really cool New Testament-style miracle. Right? I mean, we see miracles all around the everyday demonstrations of God's grace, and those are great for demonstrating the glory of God, but, but who wouldn't love to see a really great, like, heal the paralyzed guy or restore blind, you know, sight to the blind? And I think we think, well, this would be the thing that's going to get rid of all those little doubts that nag at my mind. Or we think, this will be the thing that finally convinces my friend or my brother or my father or my son to accept Christ, right? If they would just see a miracle, then all their objections will go away. But the interesting thing is that the track record of miracles in the New Testament is very mixed. Miracles always get people's attention. Always. Right? People love a good miracle. But they usually only bring a handful of those witnesses to actual faith. Usually only the people who benefit from the miracles. That's a pretty common pattern in the gospel. Everybody else just thinks, that is so cool, I want to see more. And they just want more and more of the miracle show. Now, I believe miracles still happen today. Those kinds of New New Testament-style miracles, I do believe, happen. But they happen in exactly the same sorts of places that they happened in the New Testament. Out there on the frontiers of missions where people have never heard of Jesus before and are deeply locked into established patterns of worship. 
You see, miracles are almost always associated with with the time when the kingdom of God is just starting to break into enemy territory. And they serve to get people's attention, to soften their hearts and open their minds to the word of God. And that's the key as we evaluate miracles and as we try to understand this passage, that the miracles are just a starting point. The genuine rooted faith has to be based on the words of Jesus, not just on special powers and events. And so the question I would ask for each of us is, what is our faith grounded in? Right? Is it grounded in amazing stories of Jesus' miracles? Is it grounded in a personal experience of a miracle or, a, or an ecstatic or emotional sort of mountaintop experience? Or is it grounded in God's word? And it's not that the others are wrong, but that if our faith is grounded in exciting personal experiences, then, then I would encourage you to take the next step. I think that's what Jesus consistently is encouraging, to, to dig into God's word on a daily basis and also to get involved in a group Bible study if you haven't already. Right? If We have a ton of studies for adults at 10 o'clock on Sundays. We have studies for women almost every single day of the week. We have studies for men on Tuesday nights and every other Saturday. So there's lots of ways to get into the Word. And I've mentioned before that if you, you, in your daily reading, read one chapter of the New Testament a day, it only takes nine months to get through the whole thing. That may seem like a long time, but if you're talking about something that can transform your life, it's a small investment. There are other things that transform your life and take nine months. They're good. As you make God's word a daily part of your life, you will find yourself gradually anchored and reshaped and transformed in a way that that can never be accomplished just by great conferences and powerful retreats and great sermons and exciting experiences and miracles. Right? As powerful as they are, the lasting root and power of transformation is God's word. Now, the second lesson I think this passage has for us regarding our faith is to demonstrate the proper response of faith, which is to believe and obey. As I said earlier, verse 50 is really the beating heart of this passage, because here Jesus does the miracle. But I think he only does it because at the same point, the man has come to a point where he is willing to believe him and obey. Jesus tells him, go, your son will live. And instead of continuing to argue, no, no, you need to come down to Capernaum, right, which is quite a number of miles away, he just believes and goes. This is the time when the passage emphatically tells us that the boy was healed. And this is a pattern that if you really spend some time zooming in on the, on the miracles in the Gospels, you'll see this pattern over and over again, that, that belief and obedience are usually required elements for receiving a miracle from Jesus. We saw it in the servants, right, when we talked about the water to wine, because Mary said, do whatever, do whatever he tells you to do. And he kind of had him do some crazy stuff, right? Fill some jugs with water and then, and then take whatever it is you pull out to the master of the feast without bothering to evaluate it yourself. That's a good way to get fired, right? But they, they took it on faith. 
And Niall talked about it last week, right, with the serving of the bread, that the, the people sat down, even though there were no clearly not mountains of bread piled up, right? And the disciples take their basket with their little half loaf of bread and start handing it out, even though there could be a very large biker dude on the front row, right? So we see that over and over again as we read the Gospels, that there is a strong relationship between belief and obedience and Jesus actually performing the miracle. Now, ultimately, belief and obedience are two sides of the same coin. You, you cannot really have one without the other because belief isn't really genuine belief if there's no obedience. Right? If you believe something but you're not willing to do it, there must be something you're not believing about it. Right? You're either not believing it's true or you're not believing it's important. And good behavior that's not caused by belief is not obedience. It's just good behavior. So if you believe that the Bible, which is full of instructions for living your life, is the Word of God, then it doesn't make a lot of logical sense to not obey to the best of your ability and with the help of the Holy Spirit. Right? Belief that doesn't have obedience behind it doesn't really make sense. Now, to help make sure this is a really clear point to us, and I'll say that it's really clear because after all these years of reading it, I think I finally got it in the past week, right? The end of chapter 3 has this little bit with John the Baptist, which I've always found is, I mean, sure, it's historically recorded, but I've always kind of wondered, like, how does this fit with the rest of the flow? You know, it just sort of seems strange. Like, we have all these miracles, we have... Then we got a little bit from John the Baptist talking. Well, the climax, the last verse of that is John, John the Baptist saying, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God remains on him. Right? You see, belief and obedience, they go together. And in fact, not obeying equals not believing. So John the Baptist gives us this helpful framework as we move into what the Samaritans' belief looked like and was based on and what the Galileans' belief looked like and was based on. And so the question I ask is, do you believe? Do you obey? Do I? Right, this is our... This is what we need to be thinking about this morning and all week long. Because belief gives life and disobedience denies it. Belief and obedience are two sides of the same coin. They are the necessary response of faith. So now that I hope we understand, I think, why Jesus rejected the initial request by the official and and chastise the Galileans, right? This is a passage that's always been sort of difficult to understand the, the response because it does seem so unfriendly. But, but I think now, I think we understand a little bit better about what, the, what is the broader point Jesus is making here. So let me ask then the same question we asked a couple of weeks ago. Since this is a sign, and every sign has a purpose, what is this sign pointing to? Well, as with the first sign, I think that it points to both an immediate truth, a a then and there for those who are there, a here and now for us, and an ultimate truth, 
and eternal truth. Now, in the immediate sense, this sign pointed, as they all do, to the power and mercy of Jesus Christ. See, Jesus healed this dying boy instantly, effortlessly, and remotely. He has power over every illness, power over human bodies, and it's a power that does not diminish with distance. This is the sort of power that is reserved for God. And he works this sign of power to point us to his true identity. Right? The Son of God. God himself walking on this earth. Remember, there's two things that that, you, that John tells us these signs are for, that we would know that he is the Christ, that he's the Son of God. I think in an immediate sense, this sign is all about Son of God. The proper response to a demonstration of power like this is belief. Right? You see something like that, something that no person, no miracle worker, and there were miracle workers walking and circulating in this area at this time. No miracle worker can do something like this, you know, heal someone just like that from 20 miles away. Right? So the official and his whole household believe. They respond appropriately to this power that they've just experienced. And, and it's just like with the first miracle, the way the disciples who experienced it believed. Now, for us, this sign also points to the power and mercy of Jesus Christ. And it reminds us that we are commanded to not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Now, of course, we can't expect a miracle in every case. We, can't, we shouldn't be demanding a miracle because those are rare, as we just talked about, and, and our faith shouldn't be based on whether we do or don't get a miracle. But it's never wrong to ask for one. And we should always be confident in God's mercy and faithfulness, which ensures our prayers are heard, and that he desires the best for us, even when his definition of the best involves telling us no on the very thing we're asking for. But once again, there is more to this sign than just its immediate significance, right? Because if that's all it was, if it's just about its impact on the witnesses, it would just be a miracle. It wouldn't really be a sign. But John tells us it is a sign. It points to something. And what it points to is an ultimate truth about Jesus Christ. That that's his power to instantly and permanently give us eternal life through his sacrifice in our faith. You see, like that sick boy, we're all dying. The amount of time we have left varies from person to person, right? I may have more or less than anyone else here. But our final condition is certain. It's going to end one way unless Christ returns first. Our bodies will break down, and in time we will pass away. But more than that, we were born with a spiritual sickness that leads to spiritual death. We were born with a desire to sin. It's a desire that tugs at us each and every day. I certainly know it does for me. And left to itself, 
It's a desire that leads into a life of sin that separates us forever from the perfect and holy God who cannot tolerate the presence of sin. That's spiritual death. An eternity spent away from the loving and perfect Father. But like that sick boy, we have a Father who desperately wants us to live. See, God created us in His image. He created us to honor and glorify Him, to have friendship and relationship with Him. That's what He wants for us. He does not want that sin, that separation, that death. Right? He wants us to relate to him and glorify him now so that we can spend eternity in his presence. And so even though we've done all the sinning, he did all the hard work and the suffering to make that life possible. See, just as that sick boy was restored to life by faith in Jesus, in this case on the part of his father, we too can be restored to life, eternal life by faith, in Jesus. This sign where Jesus instantly restores a sick boy to life points us to an ultimate eternal truth. That through his sacrifice on the cross, Jesus of Nazareth took on himself all of our sin, right? Your sin, my sin. And he suffered and he died a really terrible death. But three days later, rose from the grave in victory over death and sin. And that sacrifice washes clean anyone who puts their faith in him as Lord and Savior, who asks forgiveness for their sins. It cures us of our spiritual sickness that leads to spiritual death. When we put our faith in him, we are instantly and permanently healed from that sickness. And we are given eternal life. That's what this sign ultimately points to. So if you have already trusted in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, then you should be rejoicing this morning. We should be rejoicing every morning. We take this so much for granted. So much for granted. We have something to celebrate every day. The worst day possible, we have something to celebrate here. Because we can savor this and enjoy the freedom that we have from the enslaving power of sin and death. So when we're down and when we're up, we need to remember this sign and what it points to, right? This sacrifice. And we need to remember this when sin comes creeping back into our lives, right? Because we may be feeling really good about ourselves and then... They'll start tugging at our hearts, right? Start whispering in our ears. And we need to remember that we are new creations in Christ. And so we can refuse to give in to that sin. We can refuse to stumble and fall. But if we do, we know that all we have to do is confess that sin to God, turn away from that sin, and we will be forgiven. Because sin and shame have no power over a believer in Jesus Christ. So don't let them convince you otherwise. Now, if you have not yet trusted in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then I would urge you to do that right now. 
right? You have seen this sign, this power of God, right? Three weeks ago, we saw the elemental power to transform water to wine. We have seen the healing of a man who's been been an invalid for 38 years. We have seen creating food from nothing. We have seen the healing of a dying boy from miles and miles and miles away. These are the things that only God can do. Jesus Christ is the unique Son of God who died and rose again so that all who put their faith in him can live forever. So I would urge you to accept these truths and turn to God and confess your sins and pray to Jesus to enter your heart as your Lord and Savior forever. Join me in prayer. Father God, we stand in amazement at your son's willingness to enter into this world and sacrifice himself so that we can live that life that you would have us live, that life in relationship with you in in perfection through Christ so that we could have eternal life. Lord, we thank you for this sign and what it points to, and I pray that your word would work in all of our hearts this week and, and going forward. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.